You're listening to the Wellness Insider Network, episode number 38. Welcome to the Wellness Insider Network podcast, a place where you discover how to create a balanced, vibrant, and stress-free life with the right food, herbs, and self-care techniques. I'm your host, Lana Camille. I'm a college professor, drug information pharmacist, and an herbalist. Thank you for joining me on this adventure. Let's get the show started. Hello, Wellness Insiders. I hope you're having an amazing week. Aromatherapy and essential oils are becoming a lot more familiar to people today. But these compounds are not just for relaxation and good mood. Most of them are powerful medicines, and it is absolutely essential to know how to use them with respect. My today's guest is an authority on the subject. David Crow is one of the world's foremost experts and leading speakers in the field of botanical medicine and grassroots healthcare. He's a master herbalist, aromatherapist, and acupuncturist with over 30 years of experience. He's also an expert in the Ayurvedic and Chinese medical systems. David is a renowned author, a poet, and the founding director of Floracopia Aromatic Treasures. David graduated from the American College of Traditional Chinese Medicine, and several years later, his interest in Ayurvedic and Tibetan medicine took him to Nepal. There, he began a series of internships with several masters of these ancient healing sciences. During his studies in the Himalayas, David became aware of the widespread ecological destruction taking place in this part of the world, and the loss of a variety of different medicinal plants. He began to recognize how medicinal plants were a key to solving interrelated global problems, such as lack of healthcare, poverty, environmental destruction, and loss of ethnobotanical knowledge. His company, Floracopia, was created to help preserve and promote the use of botanical medicines as solutions to these growing problems. David has presented his vision and solutions to hundreds of different audiences, ranging from small private groups to conferences and lecture halls to a panel discussion with a Dalai Lama broadcasted internationally to millions of viewers. His articles and excerpts from his book have been published in several magazines, and his book In Search of the Medicine Buddha has been translated in three foreign languages. David currently travels and teaches throughout the world. His visionary synthesis of medicine, ecology, and spirituality have helped to transform the lives of thousands. By the end of this episode, you'll gain greater understanding of David's work and will appreciate practical solutions he offers to anyone interested in incorporating essential oils into their lives. Enjoy. David, good afternoon. How are you doing? Hi, Lana. I'm great. How are you? I am good. Thank you. I am so excited that you are able to join me. David, as we begin our discussion, um, my 
for you is how did it all start for you? I know that you have over 30 years of experience in um, acupuncture and herbal medicine and aromatherapy, but how did it all start? Well, in a similar way to a lot of other people who got into the path of natural medicine, which was through looking for answers to my own healthcare challenges. And specifically, it started when I was a teenager. I had a back injury, and this was uh, several decades ago, many decades ago, and there wasn't a lot around in terms of natural medicine. This mm-hmm. was before the days of acupuncture okay. and before the days of easily available herbal medicine and before the days that anybody knew what aromatherapy was. There was chiropractic, however. Okay. And so I started with getting some chiropractic treatments, and from that I got interested in the early stages of what was appearing then as massage. There wasn't really any massage available, but there mm-hmm. were some people who were starting to introduce it and through that, I became interested in Asian medicine, classical Asian medicine, because I met a gentleman who was doing shiatsu, which is the Japanese acupressure massage, and I was getting some benefit mm-hmm. from that. And so I became interested in classical Asian medicine, and I did not have a career since I was still in my teens, and I didn't know what I was going to do with myself, and I mm-hmm. knew that most of the conventional things were not for me. But I started getting very interested at that point because it was helping me, Okay. because it was something new and there wasn't anything going on. And so I began to look around and I heard that there was going to be an acupuncture college. It was going to be opening in the Bay Area, which is where I was living at that time. Mm-hmm. So I paid attention to that and talked to some people who knew about it. And they said, well, if you want to go to that program, then you're going to have to have a background in some um, pre-med courses. And so I went ahead and I just started my education in the the basic pre-med courses. And so then when the acupuncture college opened, I uh, enrolled in that and I was actually in the second graduating class of the first acupuncture college in the United States. So Mm -hmm. I was in the second year of acupuncturists to appear in Mm -hmm. the United States, and immediately after that, and this was in 1984, so many decades ago, immediately after that, I was licensed in the state of California because they had established legislation for acupuncture by that point, and shortly after that, I was then certified nationally by a new board that came out about eight years later, Okay. so I have professional licensing and certification both in California and nationally as an acupuncturist. Mm -hmm. Now, as part of that training, I received training in Chinese herbal medicine because Mm -hmm. if you go to an acupuncture college, they teach you not just the principles and the theories, but also how to do acupuncture clinically, but they also teach you how to use the basic Chinese herbs and herb formulas. So that was part of my education. Okay. And after that, when I had graduated and become licensed, I went into a small clinical practice in San Francisco and did that for several years. And I was 
uh, both satisfied and dissatisfied. There were some aspects of doing it that were very satisfying, but mostly what I was experiencing were the deficiencies in my education, and that's because the early programs were not very complete, and I was also very interested in other classical Asian medical systems. That was because when I was in clinical practice in the Bay Area at that time, I came in contact with the Tibetan Buddhist community there. Okay. And I began to meet Tibetan doctors, and I became very interested in their tradition and realized that a lot of the spiritual dimensions of Chinese medicine had disappeared during the Cultural Revolution, and what we received here in the West was called TCM, traditional Chinese medicine, but it was actually more accurately described as traditional communist medicine. It was mm. what was passed passed on to us as a result of what came out of the Cultural Revolution, a kind of simplistic hybrid of Western principles and Chinese medicine. So Tibetan medicine, and I later discovered also Ayurveda, uh, retained the roots that I was personally interested in that time. And so I got interested in studying those medical systems. Right. But at that time, there was nothing available either. So in order to do that, I had to go to the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. I had to go to Nepal. I had to go to India. I had to find teachers. And I started doing that. And I ended up making six trips to Nepal specifically over a period of 10 years okay. and spending a total of two years living in the Kathmandu Valley and studying with 10 different teachers. I had a primary teacher of Tibetan medicine that I studied with for those two years. And then I also met nine other Ayurvedic doctors and studied with them and Nine of these teachers were men and one was a woman. Mm -hmm. And I was basically one of the first Westerners to appear in Kathmandu looking for serious long-term apprenticeship and internship opportunities. Now, other Westerners kind of came and went and the teachers didn't take them very seriously because they were just visiting for a week or two. But I actually moved there mm -hmm. to do this and I became very seriously involved. I worked in their clinics. I... Uh, sat with them when they saw patients. I helped uh, make medicines. We did the herb harvesting and the preparations and the alchemical purifications and the distillations. It was a very hands-on classical internship that I was very fortunate to have because it's still impossible to find those kinds of situations. Mm -hmm. So that's the big background picture uh, with the Ayurvedic and the Chinese medicine. I began to incorporate those teachings into my clinical practice in Southern California by then. And I was coming and going and bringing this information back and bringing these herbs and these formulas and applying them. And then gradually integrating them into a full comprehensive treatment, which I ended up doing for a period of five years between 2000 and 2005. I was working in Venice Beach in California and I was doing a full extended treatment that included the Ayurvedic hot oil massage and the aromatherapy steam treatments 
and incorporating acupuncture with that and incorporating a variety of Western, Tibetan, Ayurvedic, and Chinese herbs. So by the year 2000, everything had been fully integrated into this kind of diverse treatment from diverse traditions. And that included the use of essential oils and aromatherapy, which I had brought in many years earlier. And by that time, I was doing full-on Ayurvedic uh, treatments and using full-on aromatherapy treatments. And a step at a time, the essential oils began to play a more important role. And sometime around that time, I also became involved in opening Floricopia, the essential oil company. Right. So that's the big overview of many different traditions that got synthesized into a big practice eventually over the years. So I hope that tells the story. I know it's a little bit long, but there's a lot of steps and stages and chapters to the journey. Absolutely. It's a fascinating story. And I know that as you were discovering uh, a lot of these different modalities, today you are most known for your efforts in bringing volatile oils and education around aromatherapy. But it's really quite amazing to see how visionary you were in terms of uh, bringing these variety of different other healing practices and being able to synthesize these practices and transform lives of a lot of different people. So when you started looking at aromatherapy, um, why? what were some of the reasons why you were curious? And uh, I have another question for you. In general, what is aromatherapy? Why do plants produce volatile oils? And how do we as humans, um, how have we co-evolved to use, to be able to use these different compounds? Wow, so many questions there. That's great. Let's back up here a little bit. Uh, So the first uh, statement uh, concerns that you made concerns uh, how I became known to work in this particular field. Well, uh, this was something that happened really in spite of my own diversity of interests. Mm -hmm. Now, personally, uh, I have interest in aromatherapy of course, but I have a much broader range of interests. I'm very interested in classical Asian medical philosophy. I'm very interested in medicine in general. Of course. I'm very interested in the synthesis, actually, of Ayurveda and Chinese medicine. I'm very interested in the synthesis of classical Asian medicine into modern medicine. I'm very interested also in meditation practice and understanding through meditation practice some of the classical philosophies of Ayurveda and Chinese medicine, which can be experienced in body-based awareness, like the principles of chi and prana Mm -hmm. and the principles of the five elements and the principles of yin and yang or agni and soma, sunlight and moonlight. These are all teachings that are derived from actual direct physical bodily awareness. These are not things that came out of study under a microscope. Classical Asian medicine came out of body-based awareness Mm -hmm. over a long period of time. So I'm very interested in that. But what happened was, during that period of time, when I was in clinical practice around 2000 to 2005, that's also when my book was published, Mm -hmm. In Search of the Medicine Buddha, which is 
the story of my journeys to the Himalayas and my studies with the teachers. Now, when the book came out, I had already been traveling around quite a bit and teaching various subjects, leading meditation retreats, teaching about Ayurveda and Chinese medicine and so forth. And the book being published opened a lot more doors and I started traveling a lot more. Now, because I had already incorporated essential oils into my clinical practice for many years, I was also presenting these in workshops and also using them in meditation retreats. And what I started finding was that people really loved the oils and mm-hmm. people wanted more. And so there was a demand that was driving the particular direction of my teaching. So for example, I prefer doing a meditation retreat. But meditation scares away a lot of people. But if you tell people, okay, we're going to be doing a classical Vipassana retreat, well, maybe 10 or 20 people would show up for the weekend. But if I told people we're going to be doing an aromatherapy retreat, well, 100 or 200 people would show up for the weekend, you see. So the demand demand was for things that were enjoyable and pleasurable. Now, the way that uh, I worked with this was I synthesized and integrated the two into a contemplative approach to aromatherapy. And that way, people were attracted to the essential oils and studying the oils and studying aromatherapy and getting practical value therapeutically and all of that. But we did it in a meditative context. Mm -hmm. And so that way, I was able to trick people into studying and practicing meditation by offering them these beautiful fragrances. Now, Mm -hmm. The next thing that happened was because all these people were coming, then there was a question of where are the oils going to come from? Well, I had sources and I was discovering new sources all the time. And gradually, a step at a time, the demand for a company started. And I didn't want to go into business originally either, Mm -hmm. but it took uh, on a life of its own and it became Floricopia. And that has now become one of the main ways that we distribute the essential oils. And there was a lot of travel. My wife, Sarah, and I have traveled all over the world and we've been sourcing the oils. And that has put us in contact with a whole different dimension of healing that's very important for people to realize. And that is that herbal medicine is not just good for us individually. That herbal medicine is good for the environment because it comes from natural sources. And many of the plants are very important sustainable plant-based economies in many communities around the world. And so Floricopia became a company for supporting ecological agriculture and sustainable economies, non-toxic economies. And so we moved into the world of green business just very naturally. So that's a little bit more about how I found myself in the aromatherapy box, but it's not really the aromatherapy in the essential oil box. It's really sustainable mm-hmm. agriculture. It's non-toxic economies and industry. It's reforestation projects. And it's preservation of traditional ethnobotanical wisdom. All of these things are connected to herbs and essential oils. And people don't know that because they're just getting something at the end of the supply chain at the retail level. They don't know that there's all of these people all over the world who are being supported and their economies are being healed and the ecosystems are being healed as well. Now let's 
talk about your bigger questions. What are essential oils? Why do plants make essential oils? That's a very good question. Well, plants make essential oils as part of their immune system, and that's very important to understand therapeutically. Not all plants make essential oils. As a matter of fact, it's only about 10% Mm -hmm. of the plant world that you can distill and through distillation get an essential oil. An essential oil is the volatile aromatic compounds that are driven out of the plant material by steam passing through it. And then the steam condenses and gathers in a collecting vessel, and it's full of these aromatic molecules that are lighter than water, and so they rise to the top and separate. And that's how we get both the hydrosol, which is the aromatic water that is therapeutic and very safe, and the essential oil, which is very concentrated and very unsafe. Mm -hmm. Now, why do the plants produce the essential oil? They produce the essential oil as what is called secondary metabolic compounds. Essential oils are secondary metabolic compounds. And there are many other secondary metabolic compounds that plants produce. But what's interesting about this is, well, what are secondary metabolic compounds and why do they produce them? They're secondary because they're not directly involved in the metabolism of the plant itself, but they have other purposes. And the reason that the aromatic plants produce the essential oils is that they have figured out a defensive strategy that keeps animals from eating them, such as the conifer needles are rich in essential oils of conifer oil, Mm -hmm. or the eucalyptus leaves, or many of the, uh, most of the aromatic plants actually, you can see that they have the aromas for primarily a defensive purpose. Sure. They also have, in some cases, the essential oils also have the function of attraction. And this is what we find in the flower oils. The flower oils are emitted to attract the pollinators. So basically, the essential oils have the overarching function in all species of being protective, but then some also have the secondary effect of being attractant. Now, this is interesting because when we look at the therapeutic applications of the essential oils, we say, well, what do they primarily do? Well, the essential oil industry in the United States is a little bit like the Wild West right now because it's mostly come into people's consciousness through multi-level marketing. And multi-level marketing is not based on botany. It's not based on clinical practice. People are just, you know, learning how to sell oils. And they're running into a lot of problems with this because oils are so concentrated, okay? Now, what do we use the oils for? That will reveal some very interesting things. Now, We use the essential oils basically for the same reasons that the plants produce them for themselves. And that is a very interesting, broad definition of what is herbal medicine. Herbal medicine is using the compounds that the plants produced for themselves for parallel human purposes. Mm 
how is that possible? Well, it turns out that the human body and the plant body are very similar, both anatomically and physiologically. And it turns out that plants and humans have a lot of basic, similar physiological and immunological needs. So we take the essential oils. And the essential oils are produced by the plants primarily to protect themselves. And then it turns out that historically we look at the use of the aromatic plants like peppermint and tulsi, the holy basil and lavender and these kind of things. And what were they used for in classical herbal medicine? They weren't using essential oils because they weren't being distilled until fairly recently. That is a marketing myth that they've been around for ages. They have not. Essential oils have appeared relatively recently. But the use of aromatic plants goes back a very long ways, and what were they being used for? Basically the same things that the plants were producing the essential oils for, for themselves, which is antimicrobial purposes and to protect themselves. Mm -hmm. This is the main purpose of aromatherapy. Therefore, we can simplify this and we can say, The easiest way to use an essential oil, the easiest and the safest way so that you don't burn your skin by putting it on undiluted on your skin, as people are being told to do, and you don't cause yourself serious adverse reactions by taking them undiluted internally like people are being told to do, Mm -hmm. you just put the essential oils in a diffuser. Now, here's aromatherapy to sum it up very simply. You take a large amount of plant material that's full of essential oil compounds, and you distill it, and you get a highly concentrated substance. Now, when you have that large amount of plant material, the aromatherapy compounds are in that plant material in a biocompatible form. So, for example, if you take peppermint leaves and you put it with water, you'll get peppermint tea. The peppermint smells and tastes like peppermint because... A small amount, a very biocompatible level of essential oil molecules have come out in the water. But we take a large amount of plant material. The essential oil compounds are in that plant material in a biocompatible level that we can use as teas and herbs and preparations and all kinds of things without worrying about safety and toxicity so much. And then we distill it. And then we have an essential oil. It's highly concentrated. And because it's highly concentrated, It is potentially very dangerous. It will burn your skin. It will burn your mouth. It will burn your esophagus. It will cause liver toxicity. It will cause central nervous system system toxicity if you take these things undiluted. Why? Because it has been highly concentrated from a previously biocompatible form, and it is now not biocompatible. So what is the practice of aromatherapy? Nothing more than diluting the essential oil back to a biocompatible form again. So that can be putting essential oils in a carrier oil and using it for a massage or a body oil. That's a very common application. What's another? Putting a few drops of essential oil in a diffuser. Now, a diffuser is going to do just that. It's going to diffuse the aromatic molecules into the atmosphere. So if you take the conifer branches and you bring them into your home, you're going to get aromatherapy because the branches have a biocompatible level of essential oils, but if you distill them, 
you will then have a highly concentrated conifer oil. But then if you put that conifer oil in the diffuser, you are basically diluting it back to the same level of concentration as it was when it was in the branches. Mm -hmm. But now the diffuser is putting those molecules out into the atmosphere. Now, the final thing here to wrap this sure. long answer to a conclusion is why did the trees produce those conifer oils to protect themselves from pathogens? And that includes bacteria and fungus and viruses and also to repel herbivores that might eat them. Well, we bring the essential oils into the home and we put them in a diffuser and diffuse them and it smells like the forest. What have we done? We have brought the distilled immune system of the conifer forest into the house and we are now breathing the molecules of that immunological intelligence of the trees. That's very old, by the way. That intelligence took millions of years literally, of evolution to develop. And so now we are using a very ancient botanical evolutionary immunological intelligence in our home. And what is it going to do? It's going to do the same thing that it's doing in the forest, which is it's going to have very significant antimicrobial effects in the atmosphere. This is one of the things that is now fully established through extensive research, modern scientific research, one of the strongest benefits and the most common uses and applications therapeutically of essential oils is that they are antimicrobial. And that makes perfect sense because that's why the trees produce them. So we are basically putting the essential oil on the diffuser. It's going into the atmosphere and it is destroying the pathogenic microbes that could be causing airborne contagion. So we use the diffuser and it reduces the incidence of airborne contagion. And this is something that we know both through traditional ethnobotanical use where people have been using conifer branches in the sauna in the northern latitudes for centuries and centuries. We also know from modern science and we also know from empirical evidence that one of the most common testimonials that we hear clinically when people start using essential oils just in a diffuser, in the background, in the home, I used to get a lot of colds and flus. So we know that essential oils in that particular form very simply are very good for supporting respiratory immunity and reducing contagion. So I hope that answers the question extensively about what are essential oils and why do the plants make them and a little bit about how we can use them. Very much so. And I have a couple of follow-up questions. I'm very grateful for your wisdom. A uh, couple of things that you brought up is, so one thing that you mentioned is that it takes a lot of plant material to create uh, essential oils, to distill them. Can you give us like a rough idea of what we're talking about? Well, this is dependent on the species. And the term that we use here is the yield of oil. Mm -hmm. And this is a primary determining factor in the cost. Okay. It turns out that many of the really high-priced oils like rose and jasmine, 
These require a tremendous amount of plant material to get very little oil. Mm-hmm. For example, it takes about 7,000 pounds of freshly plucked rose petals to get one liter of oil. Now, that's one of the factors for why it's so expensive, $10,000, $15,000 a liter for rose oil. There's other factors, such as climate change, mm-hmm. which has been causing a decrease in the harvest in the producing areas. And then there are other oils where there are other factors, such as the sandalwood tree and the agarwood tree, where the tree has to grow to 50 years old before it has oil in it. And so there are a lot of complex factors in both the yield and the pricing. But the primary reason that some oils are extremely expensive is because it takes so much plant material to get a little bit of oil. Now, that's not the case for a lot of oils. For a lot of oils, you can get a fairly large amount of oil from relatively less plant material. And those are the oils that don't cost as much. And those are going to be things like eucalyptus oil and rosemary oil, more of the common lower cost oils. And those are produced in much larger amounts. And here's the most important point. Those oils that have high yield that come from plants that are easy easy to regenerate, Mm -hmm. those oils are generally not adulterated. Now, here's a few shocking statistics for you. Please. 70% of the essential oils that are available in the United States are adulterated and contaminated with things such as carrier oils, Mm-hmm. which are relatively non-toxic, but they're still carrier oils. Many oils are stretched with jojoba, for example, or with castor oil, for example. But it can get really bad. Certain oils are famous for being contaminated with carcinogenic fragrance materials, you see. Now, the contamination and the quality control issues in the world of aromatherapy are really serious. And this is another reason why people should not be just pouring essential oils all over themselves and especially not taking them internally because you may have heard frankincense oil will cure cancer. You should take it internally. Well, first of all, that's a fraudulent claim. And second of all, frankincense oil is frequently highly adulterated with carcinogenic fragrance compounds. You don't want to be drinking carcinogenic fragrance compounds. So the essential oil industry is very corrupt and there's a lot of quality control issues. But we can track it back to several fundamental issues. Number one, the yield of the oil. Number two, the availability of the species. Number three, the demand for that oil. Number four, the regeneration of the plants. Those are the four primary things that basically influence 
the price of the oil and whether it's going to be contaminated or not. So here's a simple equation. The more expensive an oil is, the more likely that it's going to be adulterated and contaminated. So therefore, people always say, well, what oil should I be careful of? You should be careful of the high-priced oils. Mm -hmm. Those are the ones where contamination and synthetic fragrance is going to come in in the supply chain. What oils do you not have to worry about? You don't have to worry about eucalyptus oil and rosemary oil and things mm -hmm. like that. Nobody bothers to adulterate those. These are industry issues that we need to be aware of. But we also need to be aware of over-harvesting. And for example, sandalwood and agarwood are badly over-harvested. So in these cases, we also want to do business only with sustainable plantation projects. And there are a lot that are coming, and we can give them our business. And as a result of doing that, Sandalwood in the future will not be endangered, and agarwood will not be endangered. It's regenerative. So these are some of the complexities, but it all goes back to your particular question about the yield. I hope that's helpful. It, it is very helpful. So my second follow-up question, which you alluded to uh, just a, a second ago, was some of the eco-projects that you and your company is involved in. Can you give us some examples, other than sandalwood and agarwood, uh, where are you spending a lot of your energy and a lot of your resources? And what are some of the uh, communities that you are working with to help uh, figure out what are some of the plants and what, how to develop their business in terms of the essential oils? Well, basically, all of our products come from green, sustainable sources, ethically harvested. We're not doing business on the black market. A lot of companies do because there's a lot of rules and regulations. A lot of oils are traded illegally without the right kind of certification. We don't get into any of that, even if we have to be out of stock. We deal directly with distillers who are distilling organic oils derived from organic plants. And these distillers are naturally going to have ecological awareness of sustainability because their livelihood depends on it. Mm -hmm. So every, every one of our oils actually comes from sustainable organic sources. And that's a specialty that we are in as a business. So we are supporting, I'll just give you a, a, a few examples here. Yes, please. Uh, we're supporting on a very small scale a sandalwood reforestation project in Hawaii that is turning out to be very successful. We're supporting sandalwood reforestation in Vanuatu, outside of Australia, and in Australia also. We have Australian sandalwood, Vanuatu sandalwood, and Hawaiian sandalwood. We do not purchase the South Indian sandalwood, which is not sustainable yet. Okay, mm -hmm. That's how we break things down. We support a grower and distiller of many organic oils from Europe, such as the lavender and the clary sage and rose as well. Mm -hmm. And we support a grower and distiller of organic rose and orange blossom in Morocco. We support a distiller in Ecuador who is distilling the Palo Santo oil and 
actively involved in reforestation of the Palo Santo trees. So we could just go down the list and basically all of our oils come from those kind of projects. We also have agarwood from a project we support in Thailand and we support distillers who are doing sustainable agriculture in the Himalayas, specifically in Nepal. Uh, basically, everything that we are bringing in has that direct link. That is great. Thank you. Uh, you know, like in previous episodes, um, I've had uh, some of my guests were uh, farmers and people that actually do a lot of work. And um, I have learned that it's important to get to know your farmer. And so you are doing this with your company. You are know, you know who your distillers are. And this is one of the reasons why I'm a huge fan of your company. And I think that it's very important for people to recognize where their essential oils come from and in general, where their herbs, where their plants coming, of coming from. Um, one, um, additional thing that you, uh, mentioned a couple of times that I want you to talk a little bit about the aromatherapy business. And you're talking about other companies that are out there, whether it is multi-tier, uh, organizations or various other ones. Um, I am becoming a lot more concerned about the, some of the recommendations that are being made, whether it is, you mentioned, uh, internal use of certain oils, um, direct application of different oils without, uh, things being diluted. How do you recommend a consumer to really become much more intelligent consumer? And how do you recommend someone to learn more about this area before they start applying it, before they start using oils? Uh, that's an excellent question. And unfortunately, one of the roles that I have to play in this industry is being an advocate for the safe uses of essential oils. Because uh, I hate to mention it, but there is a there's an epidemic of very serious reactions that are happening, adverse side effects that are happening from people using essential oils in unsafe ways, and they've been told to do that. So let's look at how do we prevent this and where is it coming from? Well, first of all, the best way to prevent it is to read the adverse reaction reports that are coming out, and these are really disturbing and I will give you a source. Mm -hmm. the, Atlantic the Atlantic Institute of Aromatherapy publishes an adverse reaction report every year, twice. Okay. And every year, there are hundreds of serious adverse reactions caused by the unsafe uses of essential oils. And those range from people being told, you can put oregano oil directly all over your child mm. to help their immune system, and the child gets burned. Uh, people are being told, you can take this essential oil of lemon, two or three drops on water several times a day, and it's good for your immune system. And then people after a few weeks, they start to develop some gastric symptoms, and then after a couple of months, they discontinue doing it. But the problem keeps getting worse and worse and worse. It's because the essential oils have started to have cumulative damaging effects. The person goes to the doctor. They do the endoscopic exam. They find out the doctor tells them, you have permanent esophageal damage. Mm. Now, the thing to remember 
is that chemically speaking, essential oils have the same consistency and action on the cells as a solvent. They are a solvent. In other words, they dissolve cells they come in contact with. Mm-hmm. So they're extremely dangerous to take internally. Now, we consume essential oils in a very low level, at a biocompatible level, when we drink an infusion of peppermint tea or Tulsi tea, but we're not drinking essential oils in a pure concentrated form. So again, that's how we make them safe. We have to dilute them. But the first place to start is you should get a good scare. You should get a good shock out of what is actually being done through the advice that's being given to people who are not educated. Now, look at what an essential oil is. It's the most strongly concentrated extract of botanical medicine that's out there. That means you need a lot of education. Mm -hmm. You can't just go around telling people to use pharmaceutical extracts of plants without having a medical orientation or knowing what the species is. You can't just start pouring these things all over your food like people are being told to do. This is marketing. This is buy more oils. Drink them. Pour them on yourself. Pour them all over the bath. This is marketing. This is not medicine. Medicine is using the right dose for the right condition for the right amount of time in the right preparation or not using it. Now, What you will find in these adverse reaction reports, everything from people getting their skin burned to people are being told to put these things directly in their eyes. They're damaging their eyes. People are developing permanent esophageal damage or developing gastritis. They're they're having seizures. They're having central nervous system toxicity, liver damage. Very, very serious adverse reactions are coming. People are being told... You should put these oils all over your pets. People's pets are dying, okay? This is really tragic, and this is really irresponsible. So because I have a background in clinical medicine, I am involved in this industry as a clinician, not a business person who's trying Mm -hmm. to sell oils. So the first step is you read the adverse reactions reports, and that'll make you very, very cautious. But one of the things that... It's very interesting that is noted in these adverse reactions reports. None of these reports are from cases where people worked with a trained aromatherapist. These all come from untrained multi-level marketing reps. Mm -hmm. I hate to say it, but that's just the reality. Everybody's getting hurt because of using oils with no education or insufficient education. So then how do we solve the problem? We just solve it with education. That's the the most important thing is that you have to work with practitioners who know how to use oils safely. That's all. And if you do that, it's not complicated. Mm -hmm. Like I said, all aromatherapy is is concentrating a large amount of plant material to a highly concentrated form and then diluting it back again. So it's all about dilution. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, it's very concentrated and dangerous and pharmaceutical level medicine. But on the other hand, it's very simple. Just put the oils in a diffuser. 
just put a few drops in a tablespoon of a carrier oil and use it for a body oil or a massage oil. Mm-hmm. Just use it in highly diluted forms and everything is going to be okay. Now, I will also mention that those adverse reaction reports that come in, I said, well, there's a couple hundred that come in every year. That's only to one institute. And most people probably don't even know about that institute. So you take that and you multiply it. Most likely, there are tens of thousands of adverse reactions happening all the time because of unsafe uses of essential oil. It's a public health hazard. So this is why we should be very cautious and we should get basic aromatherapy training and we should work with trained practitioners before we start using it. Now, we could say the same thing about herbal medicine. Of course. You wouldn't just you wouldn't just start taking all kinds of large doses of highly concentrated tinctures of all kinds of things that you don't know what they are and what what they do just because somebody tells you to you know just drink it. Well, no, you want to know what the species does. Is it going to give you diarrhea? Is it going to you know, give you gastritis? Herbal medicine requires education. And this is where the Internet is both very good and very bad because there is so much information out there that is supposedly education, but it's just marketing. And that's mm-hmm. the confusion that people have. I heard that if you take this essential oil internally, it will cure this. That's marketing, okay? You look at the studies about what essential oils do and about their dermotoxicity and adverse reactions. That's science. That's medicine. You take a course in aromatherapy and how to use the oil safely. That's education and training. So we have to sort these things out. What is marketing? What is really fraudulent claims? what is unsafe marketing, and what is education, and what is medicine. And it's all confused on the Internet. These things all have to be sorted out. So I hope that's helpful. It is very helpful, and it's a perfect segue for my next question for you. As someone who is very knowledgeable about this area, what are some of your favorite books or some of your favorite websites or some of your favorite courses, whether it is those that you offer on Floracopia or any other ones? Well, of course, I'm going to be an advocate for the products that we have, and that includes our educational materials. You know, I recognized very early on that you cannot be in the essential oil industry without telling people how to use them safely, and so out of that came quite a lot of education. So I can uh, advocate that people can take a look at our site for educational resources, Mm -hmm. and what you will see is... We have a number of courses that are done both by myself and uh, other aromatherapists and my wife, Sarah. And we have several things from uh, foundation-level courses all the way up to advanced certification courses. Now, Mm -hmm. our advanced certification courses are certified by NAHA, the National Association of Holistic Aromatherapy. And this is the closest that we have so far to a professional license. Now, there isn't a license to practice aromatherapy. There's only certification that you have completed a certain level of education. But that's extremely important because if you go back to the topic of the adverse reaction reports, they state there very specifically, none of these cases were caused by trained aromatherapists. Mm -hmm. That's what's important. So 
If you are interested in learning about basic aromatherapy, there's all kinds of educational resources that are available mm-hmm. uh, on our website. And then uh, I will also mention that personally, I have a couple of courses that are also available over at the Shift Network okay. that I have taught over the last couple of years, a um, introductory level Ayurvedic aromatherapy course. This is integrating aromatherapy and essential oils into the language and applications of Ayurveda, and also a six-month advanced aromatherapy program. But at Floricopia, we also have an advanced home study course, as well as other introductory level things. So these are a few online resources for education that I can recommend. Thank you. And then, other than that, I would say... Where do we get the knowledge and the information about what essential oils are? Well, first, let's dispel a myth, another marketing myth here, and this will help people understand where we can get good information. One of the marketing myths is that essential oils were around in biblical times, and this is a great marketing story for uh people in the biblical sector, we could Mm -hmm. say, uh, the Christian market. And unfortunately, that's not correct. Distillation uh, appeared about a thousand years ago, Mm -hmm. but it really only started to happen in a a bigger scale, maybe about a hundred years ago, but even then it wasn't widely available. Really, the availability of essential oils now at the retail store and the diversity of oils that we have, it's really new. I mean, it's literally less than 50 years old. Mm -hmm. Most of it's maybe 20 years old. Now, the reason I say that is because that tells us we don't really know much about essential oils in their current modern form. Mm -hmm. And that's clearly stated in most of the scientific research. We're just starting to find out about what these are. But there is a long history of using aromatic plants. And that Mm -hmm. is true, that they were used in biblical times. And I think, actually, that aromatic plants were probably one of the first species of plants that our early human ancestors gravitated towards because flowers smell nice Mm -hmm. and they feel good. And um, they, you know, are pleasant. And I know for uh, one example that aromatic plants were found in uh, Neolithic homes uh, 70,000 years ago. They were bringing aromatic plants into the home for uh, pleasurable purposes, and also uh, they knew that it kept away insects, Mm -hmm. and it kept the animals healthy, and so forth. So we naturally gravitated to these plants. And then we have, in more recent terms, you know, back to 5,000 years ago, We have all kinds of preparations of the aromatic plants and oils and unguents and salves and all these kind of things. And then we have a long history of using the aromatic plants as teas. So how do we know that lavender essential oil is relaxing? Well, we know mostly because lavender has been used as a tea for hundreds and hundreds of years Mm -hmm. for its relaxant purposes, you see. So this is one of the primary sources we can get good information about essential oils is to look at their traditional ethnobotanical use. So don't just look at the species of essential oil. Look at the species of the plant. 
So if you want to know what does frankincense oil do, study what frankincense resin has mm -hmm. done for thousands of years, okay? That's how we get good, solid education, is go back to the traditional uses of the aromatic herbs, and then knowing that the aromatic herbs were mostly active because of their essential oil compounds, we can then safely and accurately, for the most part, deduce, aha, that's what the essential oil of frankincense does. It does the same thing as what people were using the resin for a thousand years ago. Now, another really important source of education mm -hmm. is going to be the modern scientific databases, the research about what are these essential oils and what do they do. And there are so many studies that are coming out now. It's very interesting, actually, to read a lot of these studies because, on the one hand, it confirms that, oh, these traditional people knew something, and, oh, yes, these essential oils really do have these powers. But it opens up another very interesting aspect of study and conversation, and that is that a lot of the uses of essential oils are nonspecific, and that's because they work through the olfactory system. And the olfactory system is different than taking herbs internally. And mm -hmm. I'll give you an example. If you take a strongly relaxing herb, you're going to feel strongly relaxed, okay? You yes. take some medical cannabis to relax yourself, you're going to feel relaxed. You take a strong laxative and get in your car and get stuck in traffic you're going to know that that laxative works. There is absolutely no doubt this herb produces this physiological effect. But with aromatherapy, we don't see that. Mm -hmm. It's very difficult to actually say this oil produces this effect clearly. It's not, you can't replicate it. It's not so easy to replicate. And that's because the olfactory system is linked to our limbic system, which is governed very much by personal liking and disliking and so forth. And so therefore, when it comes to how do we know that lavender oil is relaxing? Well, we know that the lavender herb has always been used for relaxing. We know the chamomile herb has always been used for relaxing. But does the essential oil of lavender and essential oil of chamomile relax everybody all the time? Well, guess what the studies show? No, it doesn't. There's all kinds of reactions, and sometimes we find that people just don't like it. Okay, mm -hmm. They get agitated because they don't like the smell. So here's an interesting thing. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of studies about the relaxing effect of lavender and the anti-inflammatory effects of lavender oil and the pain-relieving effects of lavender essential oil. And for the most part, what you see is that, yes, lavender essential oil is relaxing. Lavender essential oil is anti-inflammatory. Lavender essential oil is pain-relieving. Mm -hmm. But how was it applied? In most cases, these studies were done with lavender aromatherapy massage. And that's a very common application of essential oils. So then what do you see at the end of the study? This study shows that aromatherapy massage with lavender is very good for relaxation. This study shows 
it's very good for inflammation. This study shows it's very good for pain relief in this particular case. Mm -hmm. But it's very hard to know whether the relaxing and anti-inflammatory and pain-relieving effects came from the lavender or came from the massage, Mm -hmm. you see. So aromatherapy is actually in its infancy, and it is in a very undefined state. But what we know is that it's very enjoyable, and if you use it safely, it's a great adjunct therapy that goes nicely with meditation and yoga, goes nicely with acupuncture, and it fits perfectly with massage. It integrates into everything as a therapeutic modality, as long as we use it safely. This is perfect, uh, David. So much wisdom. Um, as we are coming to an end of this interview, I have just a couple of more questions for you. So one of them is, how can our listeners learn more about you, about Floracopia, your courses, and from you, of course? Well, that's simple. Everything is there on the Floracopia site, and the only thing that's difficult about it is the spelling. It's Flora, F-L-O-R-A-C-O-P-E-I-A, Flora, C-O-P-E-I-A dot com. And on the site, you can see the work that Sarah and I are doing. You can see videos from our travels around the world. You can meet different distillers. You can see distillation. You can look at the products. You can see the projects uh, and the people in the communities that they are supporting. So everything is there at the Floracopia site. And we are also going to be releasing a couple new courses relatively soon as well, so you can keep an eye out on that. That's that's great. Thank you. And then my last question for you, is there anything that we have not discussed yet, but you would like to leave this these listeners with today? Well, there are so many things to discuss but they're all really big subjects. Right. And I think that we've touched on the most important, crucial points. And so what I would say, just to sum it up again, is essential oils are very concentrated. Don't hurt yourself. Just get some education. Use them safely and wisely. And they really do have a very important place in the home. And they can be used safely around children, with children, and animals, but that requires more education. And as long as we're using them safely, we're going to get a lot of benefits. They're going to boost our immune system. They'll help us, you know, so that we we can become one of those people that say, I used to get a lot of colds and flus. They help people to get good sleep. They help women who have menopausal issues and PMS. They help us to reduce our stress and tension. Uh, They have a lot of applications, but they are herbal medicine. They are concentrated herbal medicines that require education. They are not just simple things that you can use indiscriminately. So that's the most important point. They're good for everybody, but you need to know how to use them safely. So I would just finish with that. Thank you so much, David. This was uh, absolutely fascinating and very enlightening. Thank you. Well, thank you, Lana. It's always a pleasure. So nice to talk with you about all this. And thank you for sharing all of this with your listeners and for the service that you're doing also with all your podcasts. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation with David Crow. I put together a quick guide of six safe and simple uses of essential oils based on my discussion with David. You can find it along with all the links in the show notes at wellnessinsidernetwork.com slash 38. When you have a moment, I'd greatly appreciate it if you could share some love by leaving a rating or review about the show wherever you download your podcasts. This is the best way to help others to learn about the Wellness Insider Network. It also helps to bring wonderful guests like David Crow here to join us. This episode is proudly brought to you by Herb Mentor. Herb Mentor is a forum provided by an innovative herbal education company called learningherbs.com. Some use Herb Mentor as a personal herbal home study program, while others explore a variety of features it has to offer or utilize it along with other herbal programs or studies. At the same time, there is a large group of people that uses our Herb Mentor vibrant community to connect with other people curious about plants and plant medicine. I hope you will be able to check out Herb Mentor and find additional information and link in the show notes. Thanks again for being here. I truly appreciate you. Be smart, be healthy, be you. Mm-hmm.